This is Science by the Slice, a podcast from the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences Center for Public Issues Education. In this podcast, experts discuss the science of issues affecting our daily lives, reveal the motivations behind the decisions people make, and ultimately provide insight to solutions for our lives. Welcome to Science by the Slice. Philip Stokes here, Education Coordinator with the Pi Center. June 1st kicked off the Atlantic hurricane season, so we wanted to bring you a series on hurricanes and hurricane preparedness. You'll hear from several great speakers in this series, and first up, we have a familiar voice. It's great to be back. I appreciate y'all asking me. That's Dr. Angie Lindsay. She was a guest in our last series discussing the impact of natural disasters on mental health. Dr. Lindsay is an assistant professor in the Family, Youth, and Community Sciences Department at the University of Florida and conducts research in the Pi Center, and hurricane preparedness and recovery is one of her expertise. In our last series, she mentioned that she sees how people come together in times of a crisis, and I can say personally that Dr. Lindsay is a great community organizer and the type of person you want around when dealing with a tough situation such as a hurricane. So I asked Dr. Lindsay to have a short conversation with me to tell us a little more about the Extension Disaster Education Network, and then introduce our other speaker for this episode. So the Extension Disaster Education Network, or uh, more known as the Eden Network, is actually a network. It truly is a network of extension professionals throughout the United States. So each land-grant university has at least one point of contact. Here at the University of Florida, we have two. Uh, I'm the point of contact for UF IFAS, and then Maya Patterson is actually the point of contact for the Sea Grant, because uh, our Sea Grant is actually uh, housed here at the University of Florida. So each uh, land-grant university has at least one person that is a point of contact that's part of the Eden Network. And then you can have as many delegates as, as you would like to have. So a lot of universities have you know, a lot of delegates and one point of contact or two or three delegates. And it's all part of the network and the membership. And we share best management practices and, and managing disasters and managing hazards. Uh, but also we, we share resources as well, which has been really helpful uh, in times of disasters of being able to pull resources from other land grant institutions as well. And uh, Eden's a great network. Uh, it's a good group of people. I, I tell people all the time, the, the minute we have a hurricane that's coming near us here in Florida, the first phone calls and the first text I get are from my Eden network asking how they can help. So it's been a great resource. And, and of course, we return the favor to our folks that have been impacted by flooding or winter storms or tornadoes in other parts of the, of the country. And, and it's a great way to learn about some of the other hazards that are out there affecting um, affecting the United States and affecting other states as well. I think here in Florida, we get, uh, we're used to tropical storms, we're used to hurricanes, but, but learning about what some of the other states have to deal with as far as, and even drought and wildfires. And uh, so it's a great way to learn some best management practices that, that maybe have happened in other hazards and other disasters that still can be applied here in Florida as well. Um, but it's a, it's a great network. We have a, a, yearly meeting usually in the fall, and then we keep in touch with the listserv throughout the year as well. And so as we continue on, I thought it would be great if you could just introduce the conversation that I had with our, our guests today, because I know your work overlaps. And so I, I spoke with Craig Fugate. So tell us a little bit about some of the work he does and, and some of the things that y'all do similar as well. 
Well, sure, absolutely. And I'm so excited that uh, you got to talk to to Craig Fugate. I mean, he's he's actually kind of the the father of disaster management, obviously. And, and, and we're so excited that he's from Florida and he's back in Florida now. And he's a great resource for those of us that, that work in disaster management and study disaster management like I do. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed talking with him as, as well as as listening to him speak, I tried every every opportunity I have to see him speak. I, I, I enjoy going to listen to him speak because I feel like I learn something every single time. But his experience is just phenomenal and uh, how he kind of worked his way up and in, into disaster management and then became the director of Florida Division of Emergency Management and then on to the FEMA administrator for President um, Obama. And his experience and his knowledge is just is phenomenal and that we're we're so lucky to be able to have him as a resource and we thank him for sharing a lot of his information out there through uh, his speaking engagements and doing interviews like this as well as uh, working with different organizations throughout Florida as well and so it's a it's a great resource for Floridians uh, and also throughout the country to have uh, his experience and being able to learn from him. And now, we'll join in on my conversation with Craig Fugate, where he's discussing his experiences with natural hazards in his time as the director for the Florida Emergency Management Division. When I got to the state, it, it was relatively quiet for hurricanes. Uh, we had a few storms in 1998. We had Hurricane George, but you know everybody was kind of looking back to the 1995 season, where we had all the storms, including Opal, that did a lot of damage in the Panhandle, uh, all the way back to Hurricane Andrew in '92. But that that period was really, you know, it was right after the 9/11 attacks. Uh, a lot of focus on terrorism. It was almost as if Florida had forgotten that we had a hurricane problem, and um, we were reminded in 2004. And you know, I think. Back then, you, you kind of, you know, go back to the Hurricane Andrew, you get one big storm a year. So when Hurricane Charlie formed, it hit southwest Florida and crossed the state, including Orlando, as a hurricane. We thought, well, that was our big storm. And 22 days later, here comes another storm roaring out of the Bahamas, Francis. And, you know, that storm fortunately weakened, but it was a slow storm. Moved across state, hit a lot of areas that were already damaged because of Charlie. And then we thought, okay, two storms, we're done. And then 11 days later, here comes Hurricane Ivan. Mm -hmm. And Ivan's making a beeline for the panhandle. He comes in as a major hurricane. And, and now we're dealing with damage all the way down in Charlotte County, across the middle of the state. We got Francis to hit the Treasure Coast, cross the other direction. Now we're up in the panhandle. And nine days later, after Ivan made landfall, Hurricane Jean made landfall about 15 miles from where uh, Hurricane Francis made landfall. And again, a lot of areas that had already been hit by two hurricanes were hit by the third hurricane. And throughout all that, we, you know, we were evacuating, sheltering, you know, massive power outages, getting all kinds of supplies moving. And, you know, from a lot of the things that we had learned from Andrew, things that we had changed, the big focus was on speeding up response. And so we, uh, by the time that, you know, Gene hit, uh, the team was worn out, uh, but we kept going. And it, it was just kind of this uh, period where it seemed like uh, it was just nonstop. But we kept adapting to what was happening. You know, the hurricane season that everybody thought it could never get any worse. We were wrong because in 2005, it got worse. It had been 
decades since we'd seen a hurricane with as much death and destruction as we did Katrina. And it, it pointed out the inequities of who makes it and who doesn't. Uh, when you look at the people that died in Katrina, disproportionate numbers were the elderly, the disabled, people from low-income areas. We were seeing that in Florida, but not on the scale that Katrina showed. And fast forward to the day, it's not much different than the same impacts we're seeing that COVID's had on communities, that it was not even uh, handed. It tended to illustrate where we had vulnerabilities, where we had lack of services and the disproportionate number of deaths that occurred in those communities. Not much different than what we're seeing in a lot of these natural hazards. So, I mean, all of these times that you're mentioning, you know, they're very stressful. You you mentioned that your your crew, your team, they were worn out. And so there's has to be so much you learned about operating in a crisis. And so from your times uh, at the Florida Emergency Management Division and with being the director of FEMA, what have you learned and what would be good to have our listeners hear about operating in a crisis and what communities can do and what you learned in all of those experiences? Well, the, probably the most important thing I've learned is recognizing that you need to do something different. And this may seem an oversimplification, but if you think about government, we always try to make events fit our systems, our processes. You know, this one thing about government systems is they're built for the day-to-day and then we try to adapt them to the crisis, and it doesn't work very well. And you have to fundamentally change things. And what I found was, even though we were in these disasters, a lot of the day-to-day processes weren't adapting. They were doing what they would have done if there was no storm hitting. Everything from procurement to travel to decision-making. It's like, we needed more information. We needed assessments. And I'm like, why? It's a hurricane. It just hit. Why don't we just respond like it's bad? Because I found the most precious commodity in any disaster was time. And government is not built to be nimble. It's built to be deliberate, very slow, very risk averse, you know, trying to avoid mistakes and maximize efficiencies. And getting quick decisions is not something it's good at. But yet that was the demand. And so for the team, it was important to clearly set what the outcomes were and then give permission to deviate from the norms to achieve that. Like I told people, I said, look, I remember when President Obama came into the, uh, the the FEMA National Response Coordination Center. We had all the federal agencies, and he's telling everybody to cut the red tape. And I had to remind him, I said, but he didn't say break the law. So there's some boundaries there. But unless the law specifically says it's illegal, it's possible. And getting people to understand that they got to do something different, we need to focus on the outcome. Don't start with your processes and try to make it fit the problem. Define the problem and what success looks like and work backwards and figure out how we're going to do it. And be willing to work in a situation where it's very fluid, uh, situations changing, decisions you make an hour ago may be uh, irrelevant because of new information. But you can't keep waiting for the new information. You have to start acting and adjust to that situation because the time you spend trying to get to the best possible answer is is time that may cost people their lives. I think that is such great advice. And I want to ask you now, okay, so you're speaking more from an organizational level, right? From yep. kind of government. Well, let's take that same advice and let's now talk about the households. So how can households, how can uh, homeowners and people in the state of Florida and the Southeast, when there are hurricanes coming, when they're in them, and then shortly after... How can we use that advice of 
of acting quickly to help the individual at the individual level, if that makes sense. Yeah, if we're going to talk about the public, this is uh, it's cut and dry. First thing is find out if you live in an evacuation zone. And if you're not sure what that means, if you live anywhere along the coastal areas, certain areas inland even, particularly around Lake Okeechobee and some of the river systems that are subject to severe flooding during hurricanes. You can look up, go to your county emergency management agency. You can go to the state of Florida. You can go to floridastorms.org and look up and find out if you're in an evacuation zone. This is the key thing. If you're in the evacuation zone, your plan is to move to higher ground if an evacuation order is given. And that means you, your pets, and everything that you need to have, medications, papers. And the reason we evacuate is not because of wind. We evacuate because these are areas where people drown. And this is, I think, one of the biggest problems we see in, in, in trying to explain to people coastal uh, and other areas where you may need to evacuate from a hurricane is there's so much focus on the wind, but the wind's not the big killer. If you look at all the data at the National Hurricane Center, all the deaths from these storms, the, the number one cause of death is drowning and trauma by water. And that's why we evacuate. We don't evacuate from wind. We evacuate those low-lying areas. So that's the first thing. Find out if you're in an evacuation zone. And again, you're moving away from water, not wind. So you only have to go tens of miles. So that's the first thing. If you're not in the evacuation zone, you may still need to evacuate. Older homes, uh, not well-constructed, particularly a lot of homes that were built before codes, older mobile homes. You know, you may have local officials, you know, order evacuation. If you're in a recreational vehicle park, you're definitely going to have to evacuate. The winds will be a problem. But for most other people, it's really about getting your home ready for the storm, securing the outside, being prepared for power outages that, you know, it's not just days in some cases, it's weeks in a lot of cases, and having the supplies on hand to get through that time frame. But the, the big thing is if you already know that you're in an evacuation zone. You don't have to think about that. And you can now start thinking about where you're going to go. And it turns out that the more people think about it, the better their outcome is, even if they did nothing else. If they just knew in their head that, okay, if I'm if a storm's threatening my community, I know I'm in an evacuation zone. I know I need to get everybody and go. If you've just thought through that, you just increased the chance of survival. Because when that warning comes, you've already made the mental decision you're leaving. Now it's just the execution of that. So if we're going to keep the loss of life down, we need people to heed those evacuation orders and don't wait for another forecast and, and don't hope it gets better. Don't hope it turns because, uh, as I tell people, hope's not a strategy. And we've seen people run out of time. There was a very eerie uh, series of 911 calls I listened to in Escambia County with Hurricane Ivan. And it was people dialing 911 as the storm was approaching the coast and the storm surge was coming and all that water was rushing in. And they were calling to get rescued. And the 911 operators were telling them it was too late. It was too dangerous. They couldn't get out there. The crews couldn't go. You, you were kind of left wondering, did those people survive? You don't want to be that person. You want you and your family to move to higher ground. So I want to change things a little bit and talk about something that you have kind of coined the term. Uh, it's the Waffle House Index. And so just tell us a little bit about that. And, you know, what are the greater implications of, of this yeah, the Waffle House Index came out of the 2004 hurricane seasons. We were down in Hurricane Charlie, and our days started early, and we were running long days. And you weren't sure because it was a pretty devastated area. There wasn't, like, places to go eat. So you tried to get breakfast because you didn't know what the rest of your day looked like. And we were staying just south of the area of devastation. We were on the interstate, and we found the Waffle House, and it was open. We went in, 
And normally if you go in the Waffle House, they have these big, bright plastic menus with all this great food on there. And we walked in, sit down, and the waitress handed us a paper copy of a menu. And it was limited. And she said, look, this is all we've got. We brought fresh stuff in. We lost power, so everything in the freezer had to be thrown out. So this is all we got. But it was breakfast, it was hot, and we got coffee. And it was a good way to start our day. Next morning, similar routine, except there was a Waffle House open closer to the disaster area, so we stopped there. Same deal. My team, we were, we were dealing with so many counties. And if you remember, Charlie was like a 10-mile-wide tornado. As bad as it was in Charlotte, DeSoto, and Henry counties, you had the Orlando International Airport that had major damage there. You had hotels, the second, third floors were ripped off in Orlando, and it exited out Volusia County. And the problem we were running into is so many counties had different levels of impact that what normally on a, on a routine event would have been like the priority county was like, uh, you're not even close to being bad compared to what we're dealing with here. But nobody could really visualize that. So we just borrowed the uh, uh, a stoplight analogy. Red was bad. Yellow is not as bad, but you're going to need help. And green was, you really need to handle what you got because we don't have enough resources to get everywhere. It didn't mean you didn't have impacts. But it wasn't as bad as other areas. And we started using that across indicators like school openings, water systems, power. My team threw in a slide on Waffle House, and it was a, the Waffle House Index. The Waffle House was closed because of the disaster. It was red. If it was open with a limited menu, it was yellow. And if it was open with a full menu, it was green. And the reason why, if you, if you know Waffle Houses, they don't close. Uh, they're 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And they're up and down most of Florida's interstate system. There's hardly an interchange. You, you go by that you don't see a Waffle House. And the reason this became something other than just that one time slide was in speeding up our response to disasters, we weren't waiting for the locals to go out and do assessments. You know, I, I thought, well, if we're going to speed up our response to disaster, we need to cut out every step that isn't adding to the outcome. And historically, we would try to assess and send teams in to see how bad it was. But that generally meant 24 hours to three days, we were still trying to get information before we made a decision to go. And I'm like, let's do something radically different. Let's just assume that a hurricane uh, making landfall is going to be problems. And why don't we respond based upon the population and the impact of that storm? Well, that's all good until you start thinking about, okay, I've got National Guard, I got search and rescue teams, I got highway patrol, and they're all driving to that area of landfall. And well before you get there, you're going to start seeing damages. You know, trees down, billboards blown over, uh, awnings ripped off of gas stations. And the question was, how do we know we're in the hard-hit area yet? And that's where the Waffle House Index became operational. They would drive by and they would check the Waffle House. And if it was open and they had full menu, they kept going. If they got there and they had a limited menu, they knew there was a lot of power outages, water problems. But that was more in the mass care, you know, sheltering and feeding operations. But for the rescue teams, that wasn't a hard hit area. Keep going. And if you got to the spot where the Waffle House had been closed by the disaster, you're in a hard hit area. If there's stuff that needs to be done, go to work. So that index became something that we became operational. We began using it, got talked about a lot. But it also goes back to the Waffle House, the company itself. They have a very strong mission statement about getting open after disasters. And they take a lot of steps to do that. They do this you know, safely, but they have a lot of experience. And if there's anything that's going to get open in the aftermath of a disaster, it's, a, it's generally going to be a Waffle House. So the, the index, it gave us a quick snapshot because if you get there and it's open and they got a full menu, that basically means the power system, the water system, 
the roads are fine because their workers could get there. They didn't have any disruption in utilities. If you get there and it's on that limited menu, it's a very quick size up that I got water and power problems. Otherwise, they, they would be up and running full menu. And if they're closed because of a disaster and knowing that a Waffle House will get open, I mean, basically, if they can get propane or gas to their flat top, they'll open. That not only can they not, workers can't get there, they can't even get the store open. I would tell people, it's like taking a pulse of a community. It doesn't tell me everything that's going on, but if you don't have a pulse, I know you're in a lot of trouble. I thought it was interesting, you know, at the beginning you said about things that you learned during your time at FEMA and and just working with government is you have to do something different. And that's what you did. You employed those, your own advice and you said, hey, we need, we need to work quicker. And so this is, this is one thing we can do that will kind of help us assess a storm. Are there any stories or scenarios where you have seen communities respond better after a storm? Some of those stories of success. Well, probably the biggest success in Florida has been our building code. And for every builder and developer and member of the legislature that tries to water it down or weaken it because they say it's too much red tape, the reality has been the difference in how homes have performed in hurricanes often comes down to when it was built and under what building code. We know that in adapting to climate change and adapting to the increased rainfall, the increased damage of these storms, that where and how we build are the big determinants of how resilient communities are. And so we're seeing that the building codes, most notably for wind, has driven down the losses and made homes more survivable. So I think today, um, as we're kind of wrapping up, I just wanted to ask if there were any last points you wanted to mention, you know, any last tips for hurricane preparedness as we're coming into hurricane season and, and just next month. Any, any last points you want to say before we close out today's conversation? As we get ready for hurricane season, get with your insurance agent, check your policies, strongly recommend you get flood insurance. Don't let somebody tell you you're not in the flood zone because if you got feet of water coming down from a storm, you're going to probably get water in your home. Second thing is you see all these supply kits you got to go out and buy. And you know, uh, periodically people go out and they'll buy all that stuff. It's hundreds of dollars. And people can't afford that. And as I was growing up in Florida, first of all, we didn't drink bottled water. We drank tap water. Perfectly fine. And when we got ready for hurricanes, we would store water in empty milk jugs and soda bottles. We'd rinse them out, clean them out, fill them full of water, put them in the freezer, uh, leave a little bit of space for them to expand. Turns out that still works. Uh, the other thing somebody recommended I thought was genius was fill Ziploc bags full of water because it packs in better. Not only do you now have cool water on hot days after the power's been out for several days, it keeps the things in your freezer cold longer because it fills in all the voids and it gives you more mass there. Storms threatening. You know, pick up everything outside. doesn't cost you anything, but get things that can be windblown into windows and stuff. If you can get shutters up, great. If not, plywood still works. Uh, but another step that is doesn't cost anything. It turns out that when the winds are really howling, shut all of your interior doors of your home. It helps the home strengthen and perform better because what generally happens with wind isn't that it blows your house down. It blows out a garage door. It blows out a window. It blows out a sliding glass door. And that creates a pressure inside of your home that lifts up. That's why we have hurricane straps and all the stuff that people say, well, you know, it costs too much and it slows down construction. But it's all those things we do in Florida that keeps the homes together. And keeping the doors closed is another simple thing to do. And then probably the last thing is, 
I'm a pet owner. I've had dogs most of my life. And as much as you see all the human tragedy, uh, to me, one of the most unexcusable cruelties I've seen are the animals that are chained up or kept in their cages while their family evacuated when the floodwaters come in. So always plan for your pets. And if you're told to evacuate, take your pets with you. Increasingly across Florida, we have pet-friendly shelters. Uh, hotels and motels will often uh, relax their policies on pets. Uh, but again, this is not something you want to figure out the last minute. Plan ahead and know where you're going. And if you need transportation or you need assistance, find out what's available at the local level. Don't wait until the storm's threatening. And most of these steps don't take a lot. Then the last thing is take your phone and make sure you got all the contacts for all of the folks you need to communicate with uh, so that if something happens, you, you have everything there. And a lot of times the cell systems will go down. Keep a portable radio handy. Stay tuned to the local stations because they're going to have the best information about what's going on in your community. Craig Fugate, it was an honor and a privilege talking with you today. I just want to thank you for, for being on our podcast for this, this series on hurricanes. Well, thanks for having me. And again, as we go through this hurricane season, we always hope to avoid the storms. But uh, if you know what to do, we can always rebuild. We just can't replace you. So take steps now to protect you and your family. Once again, that was Craig Fugate, former director of the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA. I want to thank Craig for being on Science by the Slice and providing insight into hurricane preparedness and many of the steps we can all do now to prepare. And next up in our hurricane series, we're discussing hurricane force winds. We're on site at an experimental station that simulates these winds. And Michaela Kanzer talks with Dr. Curtis Gurley, a structural engineer who researches wind effects on residential structures. Dr. Gurley said he sometimes goes into impacted communities immediately after a hurricane to assess the damage. And along the way, there's a lot of opportunity to talk with homeowners and their experiences. And something I experienced more than once, I was walking through a neighborhood looking, you know, literally counting how many shingles came off of the roofs and so on. And I started having a conversation with a homeowner and I, I always asked them what were their perception of how strong the winds were. And this particular homeowner said, well, the wind was about 132 miles an hour. And I said, that's pretty precise. What, how do you, why do you think it's 132 miles an hour? And he said, well, come here with me. And he took me to his backyard and he pointed at the roof. And he said, well, my home was designed for 130 mile an hour winds and I'm missing three shingles. Is it that straightforward? You'll have to listen to find out. Part two is available now. As always, I want to thank everyone involved with Science by the Slice. Michaela Kanzer, Rachel Rabin, Ricky Telg, Valentina Castano, Elena Poulin, Ashley McLeod-Morin, and Sydney Honeycutt. I'm Philip Stokes. Thanks for listening to Science by the Slice. <laughs>